What's up, everybody? You are tuning into the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we are here with Scott Campbell. Scott, thank you so much for inviting us to this beautiful space. Thanks for coming. Um, I know, I guess the listeners can't see it, but we're in a giant palatial studio right yes. now with like marble floors. It's yes, it's the nicest studio I've seen in my life. Just yeah. imagine Rodeo Drive. Imagine we're on the a, fifth yeah. floor. Yeah. Um, all my staff is on the third. Yep. No, we're, we're in, you can, you can hear them in the background. We're in a grimy um, <laughs> artist studio downtown. But, it's, but it's, the chairs we're sitting on are cool. They're comfortable. Yeah, so we I have like expensive it. furniture. It's right. a cheap space with right. expensive furniture. Love it. Yeah. But, well, yeah, I, I like that. I like that style. So I think there's gonna be a good one. Uh, we, we were talking offline um, how to introduce yourself. So why don't you kind of tell us like the 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 hyphenated? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I, I haven't had to make business cards yet. So I don't yeah. know what I would put on them if I did. But basically, so let's assume you are making business. If cards. I had to You're make designing a business card your own business right card. now, it would be tattoo artist hyphen fine artist hyphen drug dealer hyphen dad i'll just leave it. yeah great Perfect. i think that's the first time we've had those hyphens on the show yeah first drug deal on the show too. <laughs> yeah. yeah pablo pablo did it and then he died yeah. yeah and so we couldn't release it soon enough so here you are yeah so scott kind of we like to start off and take it way back but for you it's not that way back you're you're a young guy um to where it all began so give us a little bit about so Young Scott, baby Scott. Okay, you know, I'll born. give you. I'll, basically, I'm from Podunk, Louisiana, about 30 miles outside of New Orleans, um, a little town called Bayou Hermitage. Basically, my grandfather was a career military guy. He got out of the military in the 50s, spent his entire life savings on six square miles of swampland out in the middle of nowhere. Um, completely convinced he was going to discover oil on it and be rich. Mm. So he moved my grandmother out there built a house with his hands and never found any oil and basically just ended up leasing out plots of land there because there was a canal that ran through it that went to the Gulf of Mexico. So he would lease out plots of land or sell plots of land to, to support themselves to shrimp boats and fish boats and duck hunters. Um, Sounds like every country song. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of twang. Um, a lot of shrimp but so, boats. So my parents were, my mom was born out there. I was born out there. And then... Um, went to, from there, I went to high school and college in Texas. Um, Where'd you go to college? University of Texas okay. in Austin. And Longhorns. Yeah. Hook em horns. Um, I never graduated, so yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to say hook yeah. horns. I mean, you can say, I mean, yeah, 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 I'm sure you can say. But, um, what did you anyway, study? Uh, biochem. Okay. So I, I was. So like the early days of the drugs. Yeah. I mean, I was super into science, you know, I was like this, like little suburban kid trying you know like i was really into like the truth like i wanted like to find like absolute truth you know i wanted and science was kind of my path to that um where do you think that came from like that curiosity and or that like seeking the truth i was just super into science i was like this is what's real you know Hmm. like i wanted tangible like quantifiable like this is what actually matters um but then I, i mean I don't know how long this podcast is, but basically I was working, I was interning, you know, my second year in this bacteriology lab that was doing basically any biochem stuff is either agriculturally funded or pharma funded. And and I tried to stick to the the agriculture side of things anyway. So I was working this bacteriology lab that was studying this one type of bacteria that was growing on the leaves of plants. The professor I was working under had 
spent 12 years trying to define this metabolic process within this one bacteria because it was releasing a bunch of nitrogen and it was burning the leaves of the plants. Anyway, just so happened the semester I was working with him, he like figured it out. He like published a paper, you know, had his kudos. He had his moment. And for those who don't know, like, how was it like a big, big deal? Like, how big of a deal was it? It's this? a big deal in, you know, the land of the nerds. You know, like, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah that like, that's, that's what you work towards. You yeah. know, like, if, and it, that's what I mean. I was like, oh, so like, if I go down this path, that's my payoff. Right. You know? Like, getting published is like getting the published, validation. Yeah. And like, yeah. recognized by the community as making a significant discovery that, that genuinely helps, you know, improve crops. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just sat there and looked and I was like, oh, shit. I don't have a 12 year attention span, you know, like I don't, right. that, I don't think that's the life for me. You know, I like doing something every day and being like, this is what I did today mm-hmm. and having that, you know, daily gratification. So, um, so I had a midlife crisis at, you know, 19, 19. Yeah. <laughs> and like dropped out of school, ran away to California and started tattooing. Wow. So um, before, we, before you get into that, I mean, yeah. that's obviously a big deal. Or maybe at the time it wasn't a big deal for, but for those that are listening or those that are going through something similar, and we've had a couple of folks on the podcast as well that went through the same thing of like realizing this is not for us and dropped out. But in that moment, what was your thought process? Kind of guide us through that. I know you said you just kind of dropped out and it wasn't for you, but did you have a plan? Yeah, like were you scared? Like were you like pressured? No, I mean, I was like, nineteen. You know what I mean? Like everything. I I I started college really young. Like I started a year early because um, I I was pretty good at tests and I got a scholarship and um, I just, you know, I was just going to school cause that's what you're supposed to do. And I was, I was like, realized that like, wait, I'm struggling to go in a direction. And I don't even know if that's the right direction. Uh, but no, I literally one night met some little punk rock kid, um, you know, in downtown Austin who was like, Hey, I got a sister in San Francisco. We could crash at her house. I was like, great. Like rented a U-Haul truck, packed it up. And then, you Your know, parents didn't two care. days later, no, we, I was kind of like on my own, you yeah. know what I mean? Like that's a whole nother story. But, but basically, you know, this guy said he had a, he knew of a sofa in San Francisco. So I got a U-Haul, packed it up and then he ended up bailing. He was like, my dad said he'll like pay for the rest of my school if I stay in school and don't do this. And I was like, well, fuck it. Give me your sister's address. <laughs> and so I went to San Francisco and, you know. Didn't end up hooking up with her. I just lived in this U-Haul truck for two weeks and found an apartment. You know, just like took that opportunity to reinvent myself, you know, and basically just fell in with a bunch of punk rock kids and started carving pictures in their arms. And, um, you know, I, I finally got a room in this apartment to rent and all these people kept showing up for me to tattoo their arms and I decided to start charging money and call it my job. Yeah. How did you even get into tattooing in the first place? Like, were you, I mean, like, I had been besides... getting a lot of tattoos. I've always been into tattooing. Like I love drawing. Yeah. Okay. I had been getting a lot of tattooed even, even, you know, in, around Austin and Houston. And, um, and yeah, just was really drawn to it. Really just the freedom of it. You know, I was like, that's a lifestyle I want, you know, it was basically like this criminal gypsy lifestyle. So like, yeah. you know, once I learned my ABCs and could do it professionally, proficiently, um, you know, I would send a portfolio to Madrid to the shop there and like be like, I want to go live in Madrid. So I went lived in Madrid for a year and like, I want to go to Japan, you know, so like reached out to people in Japan, sent my portfolio, went there, you know, like traveled around and then New York. And, you know, I, I was resigned to just be this gypsy tattoo kid forever. Yeah. Um, until I got to New York and then I, I really 
New York was kind of the only place where you could sit still but still feel like you're moving. You yeah. Know? And, and I really fell in love with it. And I'm assuming you're pretty good. And I'm just curious, like, how you even got to, like, that point. Like, I mean, growing up, when you explained, like, your kind of upbringing, you, it seemed like you were, like, really into science and, like, this kind of nerdy kid. But then you had this, like, creative or artsy side to you. Like, like, how did that come about? Were you just kind of curious and wanted to, you know, draw or design or? Yeah, I never, I, I yeah, I didn't, I never thought of myself as creative when I was a kid, you know, it's like, I knew I could draw, but I, it was more just like a, a technical skill, you know, than anything else. Like I, I remember being in art class and just being like, okay, today we're going to draw this. And I would draw it and people would be like, wow, that's like, how did you do that? And I was like, well, I just made it look like it looks right there. Yeah. You know, like, and so, so it's kind of like this innate ability. Yeah. To, it just seemed very intuitive to yeah. me and, and it didn't, uh, yeah, I, um, I never imagined myself to be an artist, you know, um, until I got to New York and, and, you know, I, I got to New York and I got to tattoo some people who really truly are like incredibly powerful creatives and, and got to like put my hands on and get to know, um, like the downtown New York art scene in the early two thousands. And, you know, I had always viewed fine art as being this like really stuffy, you know, community of people that, used big words and had much better posture than me. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, Oh, I'm not invited to that party. You know, I'm just the scumbag punk rock kid. Um, but then as I got to connect with a lot of people who are like in art history books, um, you know, I was like, Oh, like these are just a bunch of scumbags who didn't fit into the world either. You know, and they didn't, they didn't choose to be artists. They just can't do anything else, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so it was really, um, kind of inspiring and and you know where i learned the audacity to just be like yeah fuck it yeah. i'm an artist and um, was it a struggle at all because it sounds like uh, it kind of you know kind of things just kind of started rolling and you know word of mouth kind of spread and people started you know finding out about you and coming to you but like was it a struggle at all getting like clients quote unquote if you will or just people coming to you saying like hey i want a tattoo i mean yeah it was it was um i just resigned that that's what i was gonna do you know and if i did two tattoos a week, then I had to figure out how to live off the money I made from two tattoos a week. And if I did 10 a day, then great. I was going to live off that. You know what I mean? It was just like, there wasn't another path. That so I how old were considered. you? Um, I started tattooing when I was 19, when I just turned 20. So. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it's, it's been a while. And what year were you in New York City? I moved to New York 2000, 2001, January 2001. Um, and, uh, yeah, New York kind of blew my mind. Like, it was really, that was, yeah, that was an exciting chapter. I'm curious, what gave you the mentality of, I don't want to call it, you know, the first word that came to my mind was, like, carefree, but just kind of just chill about this entire situation of, like, being able to afford even living in New York or, you know. I mean, just... it's it's easy to be carefree in retrospect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because yeah. now we know the ending of the story. You know, at the time, there were definitely days when I was like, fuck it, I wish I was a plumber or an electrician or anything but a tattoo artist because I'm, yeah. you know, spending my afternoon in some guy's armpit for 40 bucks. Did you but, regret dropping out of school at all? Um, I don't regret it. I, I, I truly think that... Well, not, not now, obviously. No, but back, no. back then. Like, back then, like, were there times where you kind of just like, fuck, like, I'm getting older, like, maybe something's no, not working out. I mean, out. I still have a bit of insecurity about dropping out. Uh, you know, like, there was... Um, 
the yeah there's part of me that's still kind of like uh, like you know like i didn't do it you know what i mean like i quit yeah. and it and it and it bugs me um i did i had a i interviewed a guy for a position here at bebo a couple weeks ago who had a master's from harvard and that satisfied that insecurity a little bit you know just <laughs> yeah, the fact that yeah. i was like wait you're asking me for a job did he get it <laughs> no he, yeah he didn't make it <laughs> but um but yeah but it, no I, I don't regret it you know because like, i yeah. it just it took me a while to realize how powerful it it can be to to kind of forge your own path right even though it's you know it's hard and it's grueling and, yeah. and you know you really have to get comfortable living in like the unknown mm-hmm. you know i mean it's it's interesting you know like the so we built up bebo and and just sold it you know to a parent company and you know it I it didn't realize it till I ended up in this but like this is I've this is the first time I've ever had a job in my life. You know, like I'm yeah I'm forty two and I literally it's the first time I've ever gotten a paycheck. You know, my life yeah. has always been like, you know, what's the hustle of the day? You know, like wh- how much money do I need? Okay, how am I gonna get it? Like what's you know, like even through art exhibitions where it's like I'll have a show, sell out the show, okay, how much money to make that? Okay, that'll I got six months of income to like make another show and like right. figure was out that, that exhausting? Is. Um, like looking back was oh, yeah. that lifestyle exhausting no for sure it's super exhausting i mean i you know wake up at 5 a.m every day like feeling like my life's gonna crumble yeah. i was like it's all gonna fall apart like i gotta run and go keep it together um it, it's definitely stressful but you know but it's super satisfying and i'm really yeah. you know i've done a lot of things i'm proud of you and know we'll, we'll definitely come back yeah um we'll definitely come back to like bebo and all that stuff but like yeah. i kind of want to get a sense of like you know from that point in your in your life when you're like 21 22 right. and you're you know kind of just getting this thing rolling and you're kind of tattooing here and there like how obviously it turned out well but like what was kind of the highlight of of your career maybe or like that moment where you're like i'm gonna because you've i mean i saw that some of the folks you've you've worked with and worked on and i mean it's like the 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 names are pretty up there you know so i was like kind of curious like how that even came about like when was that moment where you're like this is gonna be real um i don't know i mean i think it's yeah i've tattooed a lot of celebrities and and fancy folks um and i don't know it's just kind of been like a gradual building of it you know like it it just kind of gradually took off i mean it's you know, for me, like the, the famous folks, I kind of, you know, tattooed them without, no- like, I would just notice through the public's reaction, you know, like the, you know, like I tattooed Heath Ledger a bunch and it wasn't until the third time I tattooed him that I even knew he was an actor, yeah. you know? And then I was, cause he got tattooed and the next day there were all these cameras at the studio and I'm like, what the fuck are you like, <laughs> you know? And I called him, I was like, why are there cameras here? And he's just like, oh my, I'm sorry. Like, you know, like. I just did this movie, Brokeback Mountain. It's kind of a thing, and I was just like, yeah. oh, "Okay, got it, yeah." <laughs> but, um, but to be honest, like for me, like, like do you know who Raymond Pettibone is? Mm-hmm. By chance, no. he's a, he's this artist who did a lot of like old like Black Flag album covers and okay. stuff. Okay, I know Black like, Flag. Yeah, I've like, seen tattooing those... him yeah. was like tattooing Superman. You know, like for for me. And so, um, there were there were people that I was just like, "Holy fucking shit!" Like I'm. I'm actually participating in like culture, you know, yeah, like, like yeah. I'm a part of something. And then, yeah. um, tattooing Mark Jacobs was a really, was a really big one in the beginning. Um, he was, he was, he, to this day, he's really one of the most inspiring, like creatives mm-hmm. that I've met. Why is that? He just like really, 
he he really taught me like what a creative responsibilities are to to culture and to themselves which is like he will he will look at everything he comes in contact with be it a person or a painting or a song or you know like any work of art any creative process he will look he will stand there like really objectively take it in and give an honest emotional reaction to it and it's easy to be like well yeah that's an artist's job is to like not prejudge you know but but we come across so much stimulus you know that we judge we do you know just for the sheer just because we need a way to to like manage all this information that's being thrown at us we like we make quick judgments we're like oh i like that i don't like that i don't like this but he will really every person he meets he will shake their hand and like breathe them in and like consider them and on a level that is exhausting but he yeah. he he's just so determined to not judge anything prematurely and mm. and i i just really it really caught me off guard um i remember yeah, I remember like one time I went to this art show with him in New York and it was like a group show with a bunch of different artists and there was one painting where I didn't even really look at it. I was like, oh, I don't really like that style of work. Uh, you know, I just kind of like brushed it off. And of course, he buys that painting out of the, right there on the spot. He's like, I'll take that one. Was it because you said that? I don't know. <laughs> like, that's what I was saying. I was well, like, we'll go with that. I was we'll like, well, shit, that. now I have to consider this whole genre of art that I had written off already. You know, it's like, I don't know if he did it to teach me a lesson teach you or if he actually like did it. I mean, but I was just like, okay, it's all an right. expensive lesson. That's what I, that's what I, I will not judge. Like yeah. I will consider everything. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, like, like Mark, you know, is, is really, I, I think about him a lot and, um, I feel like that's one of those moments where like everything you thought about yourself just gets like crushed because it's like I thought I had a good eye for this stuff and like Mark Jacobs is buying this like shit yeah. I have to reconsider my whole like yeah, outlook no, has, on like art. Incredible taste. <laughs> he has an incredible art collection. I was like, yeah, and I was like, now I have to, I have yeah. to go back and reconsider yeah. all those things <laughs> I decided. Did you, did I didn't you like, like that art piece eventually or no? I I have an appreciation for it now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I do. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so it's like really just being exposed to that community in New York during those times. Um, really made me feel like I was a part of something that was globally relevant. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting. What, what I'm curious about, and I'm not very obviously informed about the tattoo artist community, but I see a lot of tattoo artists, especially now with Instagram. I mean, it seems like everybody wants to become a tattoo artist. Yeah. So what made you stand out from the noise? Because the story that you're telling seems to me like you're very humble. You just kind of were head down, just doing your thing. Didn't necessarily go out of your way to promote yourself, perhaps, during those times. But, I mean, how did that business grow? Because at the end of the day, I'm sure that made you money. Yeah. What did you do to grow well, that I, business? I kind of, I grew that business at a time when geography still mattered. Um, you know, like it was right, it was before Instagram. And it was basically, you know, and again, I don't know if you want to go down this wormhole in the content. Con if you want to go down this wormhole on the podcast, but um, Let's do it. you know, like Instagram has made geography obsolete. You know, it used to be there was an LA style of tattooing, there was a New York style of tattooing, there was a European style of tattooing, there's a Japanese style, and you know, because there were these walls of communication up, it, there were these little bubbles that could incubate different ideas, and so. You know, in New York, you'd be like, "Oh, this artist would do this," and then the guy down the street would react yeah. to it, and then you had to go there to feel it. And right. so you develop, yeah, a style in this. The styles were developed geographically. Yeah. Um, 
now with Instagram, geogra- geography is obsolete. So like I'll do a tattoo and then I'll see some guy in Malaysia do a version of the tattoo I just did and post it on his and tag me in it. And then somebody else, you know, so it's kind of this, this sharing ideas like globally. Um, but I kind of came up and made a name for myself at a time when New York, what like downtown New York was a community of people that were like really open and sharing ideas. It was just this like bubbling pot of weirdos that were just doing cool shit, you know, and you had to be there to know about it. And so it was very magnetic. And the fact that I was like the tattoo artist in that, that community, um, I got to tattoo a lot of really incredible people and a little really incredible artists and, you know, actors and everything. And so, um, so as far as how you make a name for yourself now in tattooing, you just get famous people to tag you on Instagram. You know what I mean? But like, but I kind of, I feel like I was part of the last wave where geography really mattered and being in a place, you know, like meant something. So you were more of like a New York artist, tattoo artist? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So Uh, like your style now would not be fit to LA quote unquote. Well, now there's no style. Now all styles are kind of just homogenized into, you know, um, yeah, there's no New York style anymore. LA style. Do you still, are you still doing this? Tattooing? Yeah. Yeah, I tattoo like once or twice a week, mostly for friends and family. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, my accountant would kill me if I told him I was quitting everything else to go to, <laughs> back to tattooing full time. But I, I really do love it. You know, I, I, I'm a romantic and I really like fall in love with people and I love connecting with people and just, um, yeah, it's, it's really nice to you know when i have people i care about going through emotional things in their life like i have this thing i can give them and do for them and it's really it's really satisfying so when was that moment where you kind of decided like it's time to kind of move on and not do this full time and start something like was it because you saw an opportunity and you wanted to start a business or did it have more to do with tattooing itself um i i mean to be honest like i the thing that really pulled me out of like tattooing was a, a, a broken heart. I, I was like, I was dating this girl for a while and she basically left me for this like fancy fashion photographer who was just shinier and fancier. And I was like, fine. I was like, all right, I'm just gonna do tattoos. I love doing tattoos. I'm keep doing tattoos. Yeah. And it like, if anything, I would think you'd make you do more tattoos. Just no, like, no, tattoo but everybody get my mind off this shit. No, but it was like, <laughs> it really, I was just like, Oh, like, I don't know that it planted a little seed of like in me that I wasn't enough. Mm. And, um, I've gotten over it now, obviously with like, but, but it really like pushed me on a thing where it's like, Oh, I want to be more like, I want to do more. And I'm like, I'm confident in the things that I'm making and I want them to resonate in the world further than just some scumbags arm you know like i really want to like i want people's attention you know? mm-hmm. scott i don't want to focus on the breakup too much but i yeah. do want to focus on the feelings that you were going through yeah, because yeah. i feel like you know a lot of times on this podcast or any other podcast or any other tv show or any other content that i've listened to at least we don't talk much about emotions or like what those emotions caused us to do yeah. right and I feel like a lot of people can relate to this. I think Scooter Braun, who is an idol of like me and Pat, always talks about like his wife and his kids yeah. and like, being a dad. And I want to definitely go into that with you as well. But in that moment, you know, having your heart broken, what did that make you feel? I mean, what did you want to do next? What was what was going through your head? Oh, it's just a horrible feeling. I mean, anybody who's had their heartbreak knows like it's the worst. I just didn't want to ever do it again. I didn't want to ever have that. I didn't. I needed to make sure that like. Okay, if if I just got my heart broken because I wasn't fancy enough or I didn't make enough money, 
or, you know, like because this person was above me because I was just a tattooer, I need to be more because I, I don't ever want to feel that pain again. Yeah. And, um, and so, so yeah, so that was when I first started like pushing against, you know, pushing out of my, my little box. And I was like, okay, like I want to do art shows, you know, like I, I had been invited to do group shows with a lot of artists downtown that I really respected. So I started, um, you know, pushing to have like solo shows and, you know, have had exhibitions all over the world, you know, in various museums and, you know, galleries. And so, um, it just, and as soon as it, it, like, that was what kind of started me on that path. And then once I started doing it, I realized that, you know, the sensitivity that I had gained and the sense of, of storytelling and really like the passion that I had for tattooing was very powerful when applied to things that were scalable, you know? Um, I, I mean, I, I put a lot of heart into my tattoos, but, and that's one of the things I love about tattooing is that it is, it has zero commercial value, you know, like it is only for one person. It addresses yeah. their emotional need. There is no resale value. Um, right. but then, you know, like when you start doing artwork, it's like, Oh, like I'll sell this painting and then they'll resell that painting. And then that, you know, and so it's, um, there's a real purity to tattooing where it's like, it's just art for art's sake. I and that's that. it. Um, but like you mentioned, like the scalability part is hard. Yeah. Right? Like I'm sure for most, most tattoo artists, if they don't have that big break and they're not like able to, I don't know, charge a bunch of money for their talent. Yeah. Then it's like really difficult. But right? even then, cause now it's like your time in exchange for money and like it's yeah, how much I mean, time I, do you have. You know, I mean, I haven't, you know, but there was for a long time, like I was the most expensive tattoo artist in the world, you know? And, um, but even at that level, you have to do everything yourself with your own hands. You know what I mean? Like it, it's still in a way like still, you have a finite amount of time. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You have a finite amount of time and you know, carpal tunnels is coming your way whether you like it. Or, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. It, it's yeah. Tattooing is a tough gig. I would never recommend anyone get into tattooing. Um, especially nowadays. Yeah. Um, so you, so you kind of delved into fine art and you started, you said you had a gallery. Um, no, or, I mean I've shown in galleries. You've shown I, in galleries, I, I, yeah. yeah. So you were was it like what what kind of painting? What, what kind of paintings um, were there? I did a lot of watercolor painting. Um, I did a bunch of sculptures made out of cash. Like I would take bricks of tr cash from the treasury and carve them into different things. Um, you know, a lot of it kind of carries the narrative and and symbolism from tattooing into different mediums. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it was cool. It's really satisfying. You know, I mean, I think. Any tattooer kind of craves working in other mediums because, I mean, the good and bad thing about tattooing is that, you know, your your canvas has an opinion. You know yeah. what I mean? So, like, in order, if you, like, if you have an idea halfway through a tattoo, you have to have your canvas's permission in order to do that. Um, and that can, you know, feel stifling. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas, like, as a creative, you're like, fuck, I want to just, like work in a medium where I can do whatever the fuck I want. I don't have to ask permission. But then at the same time with tattooing, you never have to deal with a blank canvas sitting in front of you. You know, whereas that can be some, one of the hardest things as an artist is like, oh, just having a blank canvas and where do I start? Yeah. With tattooing, you always have this person's story sitting in front of you to react to. You have some so direction. You always have a seed. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, and so, so yeah, so it's, it's pros and cons, but, um, but yeah, it was really, I, I really enjoy 
doing both, you know, working in fine art, in different mediums and, and tattooing as well. And Scott, between the time that you were doing that and when you started Bebo, were there any projects that you were working on in between those times? Yeah, tons. I mean, I, I think, you know, like most people in New York, you get kind of dragged into the fashion industry, but you know, I designed bags for Louis Vuitton. Um, I, I did a lot of fashion collaborations. I, you know, did a big, you know, bunch of limited edition projects with Hennessy. Um, I worked with this, this brand Berluti. Um, mm -hmm. I worked with LVMH a lot. I don't know if you know that mm -hmm, group. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, um, I mean, they're, I mean, they're a pretty big group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I've, I've done a lot of different collaborations yeah. and kind of, you know, it was, I kind of saw and helped tattooing grow up a bit, you know, from this like underground fringe criminal culture to all of a sudden like mainstream, you know, it's like in every mall, right. you know what I mean? Like you see it on fashion runway, you right. see every, so it's, you know, it was interesting seeing this like little underground craft that I really loved and, you know, my career kind of like ascended with it, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and, and yeah, you know, like I, I did play a pretty significant hand in like, right. Cause yeah, like I'm, I'm trying out. to think like, I mean, I wasn't living in the eighties, but I can imagine I mean, you like, might have been. Maybe, maybe you never know, right? Um, no, but like in the seventies, eighties, like when you see photos and like even like in the music scene, or actually like outside of the music scene, like you don't see many people who are like. Yeah, and no, if they do was, have a tattoo, it's like one little tattoo. Like they're not like yeah, nobody full, had full sleeve. sleeve like, like, no, it was like it if was you saw somebody thing. walking down the street with full sleeves, it was like heavy. You know, like, like you're oh, you're probably fuck. like yeah. like you but went to jail. At you some know, point. but it's interesting. <laughs> you know, like when I got into you know cannabis. At first, I was like, "Ooh, this is going to be kind of a jump. I don't know if people are going to follow me or not." But as getting into it, and and now being where it is, I realized like, "Oh, it's the same thing same as tattooing." You know, it's taking underground criminal culture and helping like bring it up into like you know mainstream. And you know, I mean, literally, you know, it's like like we saw Bebo in the top floor of Barney's Beverly Hills. Like yeah. that's crazy like right. i sell weed right barney's beverly hills like, i mean i remember when I, okay so i was definitely living at the time when i was a kid and like weed was like a, like do not talk about it, it was like it was like dude, just I, was, I mean i grew up in louisiana <laughs> and texas where it's a felon any possession right. is a felony offense like i remember getting pulled over by a cop and having to eat all the roaches out of the ashtray of my car before the cop got to the window so that he couldn't you know get me from right possession. it's like two rules don't kill anyone don't smoke weed that's it <laughs> yeah. do everything else <laughs> but then but now to like have weed be what it is today it's amazing you know what i mean like, it's definitely like oh i want to be a part of that movement like i want to be a part of pushing that we, forward. we always talk about that like how do you i mean how did this whole thing even like it, 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 these like phenomenons really interest me like how you know even things that are illegal like even like prohibition back back you know in the, in the 1920s what was it, in the early 1900s when like you know there's a big group of people behind something like is it almost inevitable that at some point like it's gonna be a big market if you will or like how do you how do you even think about these things right um yeah i mean with you know with weed like the genie's out of the bottle you know like it's still federally illegal doesn't but, like half the country or hasn't like smoke or has yeah smoke over or, well i mean over half the states have some cannabis program right now. you yeah. know like i don't know what the count it changes every week but yeah. I think it's like 27 28 states yeah have legalized cannabis um so so yeah like it we're well beyond that tipping point it's just i mean this administration, there's a lot of fires to put out in DC. So like, I right. think, you know, had, had things gone differently, 
um, last election, you know, like might right. cannabis might be front and center, but there's a lot of, you know, more urgent crises that right. they're dealing with. Right, right, So when did you officially get into the weed business? Um, so I, um, my partner that I launched Bebo with is a guy named Clement Kwan, who he was a president of a company called Ukes, um, which I don't know if you guys are familiar. It, How's Ukes, that spelled? Y-O-O-X. Okay. They do a lot of back-end e-commerce for mm. most of the fashion industry. Okay. Um, so kind of like Shopify? They're, no, they do a lot of... But back-end? They, yeah. Databases like back-end, like, and stuff so like, like that? They would, yeah, like for Dolce Gabbana, they would handle all the e-commerce for Dolce Gabbana. You Got know, it. would have the face of Dolce Gabbana, but they would actually like hold inventory and right. do other things. So, um, so he managed that business. And then Ukes bought Net-A-Porter and like Net-A-Porter, mm-hmm. Mr. Porter and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, Which are big brands. Yeah, yeah, huge. But they're, you know, editorial consumer facing. So basically he, you know, bought those, bought Net-A-Porter and then combined them. So now he has back-end e-commerce and forward-facing, you know, editorial to make this like, you know, partnership with them. And then he cashed in his chips and was like, I want to do weed. So he and I um, got together and, you know, we, we went out to Colorado a bunch and out to California and just like looked at a lot of other businesses. How'd you guys meet, by the way? We met um, on a plane to Detroit with uh, Tom Kartsotis, okay. who started Shinola. Okay. Um, basically, one of my favorite brands. He's great. Yeah, yeah, Tom's an amazing guy. Their watches are phenomenal. Yeah, and they so when they were when they were first getting set up in Detroit, they flew a plane load of you know New York weirdos out just to like check it out. You know, like give our thoughts on what they're doing. You know, just to kind of um, spread the word. And so we met on that plane and. Gotcha. Um, it's like, you know, I get on the plate, there's like 10 people and you know, you do the quick scan and you judge, but literally, you know, like I did the scan and I was like, okay, nothing in common with that guy, you know? And like Kevin, yeah, yeah, cause yeah. he's just like this six foot five, very conservative looking Asian guy. <laughs> I was like, okay, well we're, our worlds do not overlap. And of course that's the guy I end up hanging out with the whole trip. And, uh, going back to that art piece you were looking yeah, at. Yeah, no, <laughs> don't. Every time I've judged, it bites me in the ass. Don't do it. For the record, I've never had anybody interesting on any plane ride I've ever been on. And, I was uh, just on a 12-hour <laughs> plane ride, and I'm telling you right now, the person next to me was not, <laughs> was not. I need to be on better plane rides. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so you you said that you guys so, kind of got so we together. Got there, and we got together. Flew yeah, out to we Colorado. Started, yeah, we started kind of looking at other businesses, um, you know, and we you know, we were like, okay, let's like, let's find a business that has potential. Um, you know, we, we were like, let's find a vertical operation that we can buy and then do our magic sparkle sauce on the consumer facing end and just improve it. And you so know, you wanted to buy a farm? It. Well, we wanted everything. Okay. You know, like we wanted full supply we chain. Wanted, yeah. Like a vertical operation. And around what year is this? This was 2014. Okay. Um, and, and you're still in New York. You're living in New yeah, York. Yeah, we were living in New York, but we you know we were trying to figure out where we yeah, wanted to be. Yeah. And so then we um yeah, we looked at a lot of businesses and we realized that, you know, we just started to get to know the landscape a little bit better and saw that a lot of first of all, we realized that like we don't want to be farmers because there was a lot of industrial grows being built. You know, a lot of it, you know, back then it's crazy to say back then. Because that right. was like five years yeah, ago. Yeah, a lot's happened. But back then, you know, people who wanted to like participate 
in the green rush, people were like, oh shit, I need to get in on weed. What am I going to do? They would just invest in grows. Mm -hmm. You know, they would just like build these crazy, they would invest in these giant grow operations. And so we saw all these huge grows coming online and realized like, wait a minute, like this is just going to be another commodity, like potatoes or corn. You Mm -hmm. know, like when all these grows are flipped on, I don't want to be a little podunk. Yeah. I don't want to be a farmer next to that, you know? So like, and you know, like there's going to be a surplus of supply. So in in an environment where there's a surplus of supply, the people who have the power are the ones that control the audience, you know, or, or like have the confidence of the audience. So have we have the demand. Yeah. yeah. So we, um, so we were like, look, like that's the part we're good at. That's the part I'm good at is yeah. like, you know, creating a brand and telling a story and like earning people's trust. Yeah. Building a so following. let's, and, and sorry to cut you out, but do you yeah. think that's proven to be true? Like, cause I feel like, like we were talking offline, like everyone and their mom has like a CBD or like weed brand now. Like, 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 do you think that it's still like supplies still, um, it's, I mean, now... Or, like, like is, are we getting to that point where, like, these farms... For sure. I mean, Would it have been moment, smart for five, you to buy a farm back then? Five years ago, when yeah. we were looking, yeah. um, you know, good indoor weed was selling at, like, 2,500 a pound. Mm. Now it's 800 a pound. Yeah. You know? So, no, I'm glad I don't yeah. own a farm. So it's gone, yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, those guys who own the big industrial grows are doing fine. Yeah. But I, you know, like, I've just, res- like, I know what I do well, and I'm not a farmer. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. I love you the romance of the yourself. plant. I, you know, like, I mean, walking around weed farms is so <laughs> intoxicating and, yeah. like, fun You have to be built for that lifestyle. It's, like, it's so much fun. I mean, that's that's, like, the most romantic part of any of it is walking around those farms and just smelling it and touching it. And so it's, you know, I was like, I wanted that, but it's, um, yeah. but like, I know, I know my strengths and I know what I'm good at. And I, I saw like what people were putting out in the world. And it was back then like very collegiate in taste level. And, you know, it was just, everybody was like, how high can I get for 20 bucks? You yeah. know? And I was like, okay, like we can, we can do something <laughs> a little more grown up than that. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we realized that we needed to build a business that relied on our strengths and outsourced our weaknesses, you know? Um, so we, so we just did, you know, branding, marketing and quality control and, you know, worked with different farms and, you know, suppliers that could, you know, we, I mean, we touch everything, like we have our hands on it, but we don't actually hold licenses Mm -hmm. and everything else. So we, we, we let them do it and we just oversee it. So what was the first uh, product you guys launched with? Because I know you have a bunch of products now, but... Um, we launched... I mean, we keep it pretty lean. You know, like we do vape pens and uh, pastilles. These these candies are kind of our two main SKUs. You know, I, I think... And then you have a skincare line, right? We have a skincare line yeah. also. Yeah, that was launched more recently, earlier this year. Okay. But in the beginning, it was just vapes and, and pastilles. And, um, you know, that was deliberate. You know, I felt like that... Those two products would cover like pretty much, you know, the demographic we wanted to. And, uh, you know, we started on pretty limited resources. So I didn't want to spread. I, like I've seen a lot of businesses make the mistake of thinking having, you know, 12 products right. in the market is success. But I was like, I'd rather have just like one or two really strong ones and just move a lot. And then we'll figure know. out how to scale later on. Yeah, for sure. Be- like I don't need, you know, 27 different things out there, you know. like yeah. So... In terms of the early days of Bebo, like where was the idea even born from? Where where did the audience come from? You know, because you definitely are tailored to a specific audience. What was that kind of discussion like early on? I mean, I think obviously, you know, Clem um, is you know coming from the fashion world is better at 
he's better at better than anyone I know in the world at selling people stuff they don't need. <laughs> you know, like it's not <laughs> right. Like this is not you know like uh, this is not a brand. It's not a medical brand. It's a right. super fun like warm and fuzzy right. recreational brand. Um, so I, you know, I, I am. I hate focus groups. I hate market studies. I hate all that stuff. I think anything well-designed is designed selfishly. So I basically made something for me. You know, I wanted something that's good enough for me and good enough for my wife. And, um, you know, I'm a high-functioning adult who has a career and kids to raise. And, you know, the biggest issue I have with what was on the market at the time is that everything was designed to get you as like just chain you to your sofa for four hours, you know, which like, I don't have time to sit on my, I, I don't have time. Like I want a bit, a little warm yeah. and sparkly, but like. Pat and I were wondering the same thing the other day is how do people do that every day? Dude, I, I mean, the and, fact and that like, you know, like, people hand you a pot brownie and be like, oh, here's a brownie. It's awesome. This is, it's 12 doses. It's like, well, give me 12 brownies. Don't give me yeah. one brownie that's 12 <laughs> doses. You know, like who eats a 12th of a brownie? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so we... You I've know, never eaten a 12th of a brownie, no, by the way. ever. It's impossible. You can't. Yeah. I barely eaten one brownie and stopped, <laughs> but that's a whole different story. Um, but yeah, so we wanted something that was like very pedestrian friendly. Um, you know, everyone has one of those pot brownie horror stories of eating too much. So like with our edibles, you know, we wanted really low dosage, very precisely controlled. You know, we wanted people's trust, you know. And so, you know, like we wanted, like when you have one of our candies, if you have you know, you know exactly what you're going to get. And, yeah. you know, what you are know. you going to get? Um, with one of them, just little warm and fuzzy, just, you know, like if you want to get high, eat three, you know, but just right. one is, is kind like of more chill. Yeah. I mean, I can get into like, you know, my relationship with weed and creative processes and creative theory and all that stuff. But, um, but as I mean, far what, why don't we do that? I mean, uh, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay. curious. Yeah, I don't know why we're. I don't know why we weren't getting into it. I don't, know, it. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I, no, I, just, I love it. I'm trying to go easy I mean, on whoever's editing no, this, but yeah. Well, don't worry, you know, it's, me, the, it's me, and I'm yeah, okay with yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason I think it's interesting is because, if anything, this is more educational, and I want people to hear about this side of the industry as opposed to all the negative stuff that's always out there, right? Yeah. And then they can make the judgment call on their own. I don't really care. But I think that as you know, Americans, human beings, whatever, we lack information like we lack being informed before we make a decision or just why true we got to honest this whole point. recollections yeah. and experiences right yeah. yeah so my relationship with, so you know i cannabis to me at this point is like an office supply you know it's just like a creative tool so any creative process whether you're writing a book or making a painting um you know it, it incorporates two parts of your brain. You have your subconscious mind, which is where all the like abstract, gooey, like super romantic, emotional thought happens. Like that's where ideas are formed, you know. But then, then you have your your conscious mind, which is the one that is you know pragmatic and rational, and it's responsible for taking this gooey abstract idea and rendering it in some sort of medium so that it can exist in the physical world, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, so, so yeah, so basically, you know, I, a lot of creatives, um, what they work on is having those two parts of your, your brain talk to each other, you know, like with like David Lynch, I don't know if you've read his catching the big fish. He's super into meditation, mm-hmm. you know? And so he uses meditation to like calm his mind and really, 
have his subconscious mind and conscious mind um, have a relationship where they talk to each other, you know, and so he can have these like really fantastic ideas um, that would normally, you know, the moment they touch your conscious mind, your conscious mind would be like, that's not possible, you know, like put it away. That's not possible. Put it away. But like, you know, if they really work with each other, then you can have these like crazy weirdo ideas and be like, let's try to make it possible. You know, let's try to render that. Let's try to write that story. Let's try to make that film. So and anyway, like, so yeah, Lynch uses meditations. I remember reading about, I've uh, heard about like, obviously a lot about like micro dosing and like, you know, people like Steve Jobs, like actually dosing, not micro, like dosing, (laughs) Uh, full dosing. Um, I I don't know. Like, I don't know if you've ever experimented with that stuff, but I wonder like how that, I know like a lot of creatives go that route too. Similar. Similar. So like, like Thomas Edison, I always remembered he, um, I don't know if it's true or not, but I love the story where he would sit down late at night and he would have his table and his journal and his pencil and then in his other hand, he would have a handful of marbles mm-hmm. and he would meditate on like inventions and problems and eventually he'd fall asleep. But then when he fell asleep, the marbles would fall out of his hand and hit the floor and wake him up. And so he'd pick the marbles back up and like keep meditating on the problem and then fall asleep. And basically he would just do that again and again. And that was a way of traversing that membrane of sleepfulness and wakefulness, you know, cause like when you know, like that, that lucid dreaming stage where your conscious and subconscious are talking to each other. And he would try to go back and forth through that moment as many times as possible where a lot of ideas would happen. So mm. anyway, um, cannabis is really useful in that, you know, where it just kind of helps, you know, a little bit of weed where, you know, it just helps quiet that part of your mind that is so quick to say that's not possible. Um, so that these ideas can survive, you know, mm. your own self-criticism and and come to fruition and sometimes they're great sometimes they're dumb but at least they are born right and um you know so that's why i like you know having a little bit you know having the dosage be very controlled and very mild because too much then you're like i'm i'm never gonna finish this yeah thing. i'm already yeah. too high but so yeah. it's um so yeah so bebo was designed basically for me you know because it's i i want to get a little sparkly a little warm and fuzzy but i still have shit to do Huh. And so at the time, like you couldn't find anything like that. It was kind of like up to the user. Yeah, it was like, to... yeah, it was like taking a gummy bear and just eating like one foot off a gummy bear. You yeah. know, and it's like, like no, no one's gonna do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, but nothing was really. And also, you know, I'm very careful about what I put in my body. You know, like I yeah. want. It's not like time is my most limited resource, not money. So if I have you know two opportunities a week to enjoy weed. I want the best possible. I don't have time for bad weed. You know, mm-hmm. I want the best premium. Like, I don't care how much it costs. I want the good shit. Yeah. And when um, did you get to that point? I'm curious. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's because <laughs> um, that's how I feel about food. Oh yeah, no, food <laughs> was early on. Like, yeah. with, with, mm-hmm. I, back when I was tattooing, I remember the day I was in New York, like working on the Lower East Side, like making. I mean what then was decent money but also like my overhead you know was four hundred dollars a month Beautiful. but i remember the day i decided i'm not gonna look at prices on menus anymore yeah you know or just like i'm gonna get what i want that's a big day and i'm not gonna look at the price it feels fucking amazing yeah, yeah. yeah. um but yeah but similar to that you know like and then i just kind of transferred that to drugs where i'm just like <laughs> i don't care how much it costs i want i want what i want yeah and, uh, well i don't care what's gonna happen with this thing i'm just gonna do it right like that's yeah. going back to like the you know knocking off that one side of your brain that says like don't do it or yeah. like yeah like so it's so yeah so it's been so it's also like a quality standard you know it wasn't just about low dosage like i want like quality. premium quality yeah so i saw online that you guys 
are like the Hermes of weed? You know, what makes you guys the Hermes of weed? Um, well, the New York Times said it, and so it's true. End of answer. Please move on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm like, the New York Times yeah. said it, so I, you know, like. Who I, there Who there smoked, who there enjoyed the product. <laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, you did mention, like, when you said design, you were kind of talking about how the actual, like, product was designed, but not, like, well, product, when I say product, like, the what's in the it. The functionality. The yeah. functionality, know, but, but the what about the actual the external? external? I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I'm an aesthetic person, you know, like, I... I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a wine shop and, you know, the manager will come up to me and be like, oh, what would you like? And, you know, I'm like going to a dinner party, you know, like I want to get invited back again. What should I bring? And, you know, like, what are you eating for dinner? Okay, here's what you should get. And they'll point out some bottle of wine and they'll be like, this is the best bottle of wine in the whole store. It's only $20. Um, This is my recommendation. You should buy this. I'm like, great. Thank you. And then they walk away and I look at it and I'm like, I can't show up with this font you know what i mean like this is like what this is like the most horrible label design i've ever seen and i'll put it back and i'll buy whatever looks good and cost 80 bucks you know and so um i just like i'm an aesthetic person i don't like maybe i'm judging but i also think there is a real vetting process especially you know with cannabis a lot of people are new to weed and so when they go into a store and they look at the landscape of products out there if there's one thing that is very thoughtfully put together and considered, you know, you can tell that like I might know not, I might not know weed, right. but I can tell whoever made this is proud of it. Right. Yeah. You know, and that in itself is a very like if they put this much thought and consideration to the exterior, yeah. you know there's at least that much put into it. It's not just right. like they're not just trying to grab money off the right. top yeah. and just so like, totally. you, so know, it's, yeah. you know, what I mean like I do think aesthetic and presentation and the consideration is a vetting process when yeah. people are approaching something that they're unfamiliar with yeah. and they're deciding whether or not they want to trust it. And not sure if they're competitors, but the other day that, that happened to me where I saw like this packaging and it was beautiful and I was like, what is this? Like, yeah. cause you don't know what it is. Like I'll take it. And yeah. it was Lowell Smokes. And it oh, was like, they're that, awesome. yeah. it was like that collaboration with Biggie's son. Yeah. Um, whose name is slipping my mind right now. CJ Wallace, maybe CJ Wallace. There you yeah. go. Um, and I was like, this is beautiful. And then yeah. the, my friend that I was with brought out like an ashtray. And I was like, wow, that's beautiful too. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't even see products like that in just any other like category. Yeah. Like this is like a legitimate brand. And when we were looking it up though, it was like, they started in what, like 1905? Yeah. Some crazy shit like that. that. They were like, like, they're like a really old like company. Like pre-California banning marijuana and then right. and they unbanning it. Yeah. 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 So I was like, but, but you, that, that's a great point. Like, you know, even with the wine industry or food or anything, like we like judge with our eyes. Like we look with our eyes. And I think the best example of that. First impression, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we had just be like, "Oh, I relate to that." Yeah. On episode six, like early on, we had Nick Ingersoll from Barnana, and he's like their CMO, but their design guy. It's like a snack brand, and he said, "Like, there's just things that human beings consider like objectively beautiful." Yeah. Like you're looking at it, like, "Oh, that's beautiful." I think he redoes their packaging like every month. (laughs) Every time I see like his Instagram story, it's like a new new design for it, and they're like banana chips and like banana (laughs) snacks. But he like he like really like dedicated. He's that kind of guy too. But yeah, what is the feedback you've gotten from folks that have purchased this product or that are users of Bebo? Um, I mean, you know, I think. Normally, I, people know I'm the founder, so they they usually don't tell me that yeah. they don't like it. You know? Sucks, but, Scott. But yeah, no. But our our kind of like we should actually have it like written on the wall somewhere here. Is that like our blanket feedback is like when people or if people see it, you know, they're like, oh yeah, like my wife loves that stuff. You know, like across the board, everybody's like, oh yeah, that's the stuff my wife really loves. You know, and I 
I love that. I mean, it wasn't deliberately targeted towards women, but my wife was definitely like amused yeah. in its creation. And, and I always, you know, would bounce ideas off her. And I was like, if it's, you know, like I, I was like, I want to make something good enough for my wife. Yeah. And, um, and I think in most households, the wife is the more discriminating consumer. So the fact that, um, yeah, the fact that the wives approve of it is a, is a big, you know, badge of honor. Yeah. And it's been how long since you first launched? We launched um, 2017, March Co- 2017. A couple of years, give so or take. Two and a half years. So in, two and a half years, in those yeah. two years, like what's been the most challenging thing? Aside from kind of the stuff that people already know, like with regulations and things like that, like has there been anything that's like you weren't really sure that of that that would happen and then you just like, holy shit, I wasn't expecting this? Um, all of it. Yeah, oh, really. Everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's kind of... Such a new space, right? Yeah, it's such a new space that it, you know, like everything is speculative you know it, it started out like yeah let's do it let's try it let's see um and and yeah as soon as people started when i started seeing it around or hearing about it and i didn't bring it up it was when it's like oh this is a thing you know like we people would be like when i'd go somewhere my wife would be like oh he has this brand bebo and they're like and they know of it before they know of me you know like it's um yeah that was when i started realizing like oh this is a this is a thing it might actually work um, but yeah, but now it's, you know, like we just merged with this larger company, they have licensing in 12 States, you know, vertical operations. So now it's like very quickly becoming a national brand, which is exciting. Let's talk about that. I mean, like yeah. how did that whole thing come about? Like, were you actively trying to get it to that level and sell or were you yeah. just, I mean, the I have the luxury itself? of being the creative end and my partner yeah. Clem dealt with all the you know, song and dance with investors, you know, and fundraising and all that. I mean, I, you know, I would have to do my song and dance to basically like, if you saw us sitting next to each other, it's very clear which hemisphere of the brain we each (laughs) represent, you know, where it's like, he's the pragmatic Asian that makes sure everything works. Okay. And I'm the like emotional, creative weirdo. Um, but no one would loan me that much money without him sitting next (laughs) to me. But, um, but he kind of legitimized everything. But, um, but yeah, so it was um, it was exciting. I mean, we knew we didn't want to have to keep raising money on our our own. You know, like our our intent was very much to establish a name and a reputation here in California because California is kind of the the crystal ball for what cannabis will be nationally, mm-hmm. and and then partner up with a, a multi state operation. And uh, yeah, we I mean we sat down at the table with you know every company that was sizable enough to do what we wanted to do with it and to scale us. And, and, um, GTI was just by far the best cultural fit. Mm-hmm. You know, they really, um, they, I just like their philosophy cause I feel like there's so many in the weed space. There's all these like fucking tech and hedge fund guys who are trying to plan like a two year exit. You know, yeah. they want to just like, like quick buy flip, it, flip quick it, flip. get yeah. the evaluation up and like be done with it in two years. And, um, well, what that says is that they're not very optimistic about the future of the space, right? Yeah. They're not long. Like, they're very I'm, short. But I'm old school. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I didn't have a bank account till I was 35. You know, yeah. I just had a mattress full of cash. Like, I want, I want to build a cash-positive business and grow it. You know, I don't want to just, like, take out all this debt to scale and then try to get the valuation up to catch up to our debt. And like, it's just, like, all that. I was like, no, I want something concrete where it's, like, we just build it organically. And I really, like, GTI's kind of philosophy and and mindset was very much about the long game you know it's not about this like slash and burn you know 
mentality. Um, and I really appreciated that, you know, cause I, uh, and they, yeah. What's the transition been like in your words to like a real job where, <laughs> where you're coming in, you're answering to people, people are asking you questions, you're leading them, guiding them, mentoring them to grow a company. I mean, what, yeah. what is, I mean, it's obviously I mean, a it's, massive change. It's, it is, you know, cause like when, when we, you know, here in, in LA, in the LA office, we've got, like I said, like 22 people yeah. working here. Um, you know, I have the time and bandwidth to touch everything, you know, like every Monday we sit down and we all talk about what we're doing this week. What's the state of sales? What's marketing doing? What's production doing? You know, and, and I, I can touch everything. Whereas now it's the first time it's gotten to the point where I can't touch everything. Like I have to let go and we have to kind of divide and conquer. It's like, all right, I'm going to stay over here because now we're launching the skincare line with, you know, Bebo therapies and putting that out there. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of, I imagine it's a similar feeling to sending your kids off to college where it's like, you just got to have faith, you know, mm-hmm. you're like, I've raised them the best I could. Like, you know, like yeah. go, go do it. You know, it's is like, that a scary thought for you? Um, no, I mean, it's what we always wanted. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it was, you know, it's what we've been working towards, but, but yeah, I mean, it's an adjustment not being able to touch everything myself. Yeah. Um, but I still touch as much as I can. I'm sure there's a lot of work yet to, still to be done, like at this yeah. point. Um, like at what point? Like how long do you think until like we see just kind of walking on the street, like every other person, like with one of these pens or like? I mean, I think it's you know, like when it's federally flips, that'll be the biggest and kind of final hurdle to fall because r- right now it's still, and then it's just going to be like everyone out the gate, huh? It's just going to be like um, I don't know. I mean, the the thing that will really change is that banks can take money. I mean, I've had a. You know, our bank account's been shut down 10 times. Yeah. You know, we Processing's get the, we a big get the call hurdle, and we yeah. just be like, hey, we can't have your money anymore. You got 24 hours to get it out. So we got to, yeah. we're like so many times. What they call like high like, risk? Is that what the yeah, highest yeah. process? Um, yeah. You know, like we've been walking around town with a cashier's check with our entire <laughs> funding in it, like trying to find You, you feel like an actual it. drug dealer, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I do, it does still feel a bit illicit. Yeah. Um, That's where boxing comes in. There you go. But, you know, but I've, and, you know, with my team and everything here, you know, we definitely get frustrated with the hurdles of, yeah, like payment processing for CBD. Um, but, you know, I have to always remind myself and everybody else, be like, look, it's a pain in the ass, but that pain in the ass is the reason why Anheuser-Busch isn't allowed to come in here. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, the, it's this awkward gray area right. and all its complications is an opportunity for people like us to gain market share. I'm glad you bring that up because that is something that I've definitely wondered is like once it is federally legal and like now everyone can, everyone's free, it's you know, free season. for all. Yeah. Um, what happens when all these big brands start introducing their like brand names? Like the, people well, have been the, in this business for like hundreds of years. Businesses like us, get bought you know, out. by that time, you know, like, are sizable enough that they can't be ignored or steamrolled. You right, know, like you've that. built and, a strong enough brand. customers are educated to the point where they're like, oh, I'm not going to buy the Nestle brand weed. I'm going right. to buy, you know, this mom and pop version and like be loyal to them. And, right. Um, and yeah, so so it's, you know, like, it's a pain in the ass, this weird gray area, but it it's the only reason why people like us can yeah can make moves. Yeah. And I think, Pat, there's like two answers to that. I think one is, in my opinion, they're these mom pop shops that are actually have some market share are going to be acquired by those bigger brands and For operate sure. as their own. Like they're not going to I become, think I, like my, my, my opinion is going to be less than we think. Sorry. Less, less brands are going to be acquired than we think. I don't think I so. I think the ones like obviously Bebo yeah. and like the ones that I mean, have re- like to be honest, built a brand I, already at a moment right. now yeah. where 
things are rolling up and yeah. different. You know what I mean? Like basically, even at this moment in the California market, um, if if a brand hasn't aligned themselves with one of the bigger groups, like yeah. it's, right, it's going to be rough. Like right. I, going back to why because I asked, price point wise and everything, and like if, you know, just efficiency of scale, right, and the distribution know. that those Go, guys have, right, exactly. So that's why that's why I asked, like, um, did you like, did you think it was the right choice to not buy the farm back in the day? And obviously, personally for you, it was. But my, what my thought process was was like, once these big brands start coming in, they're most likely going to private label this stuff and white label it, and then the winners are going to be the ones who are like manufacturing it, right? Not the small brands who are like buying from the same farms. Yeah, I mean the brands will be. I, I mean I don't know because different, but because it's going to be interesting. Because even though it's nationally legal, there's and and I'm not the expert on this, but a, a lot every you know like even though it's federally legal, I think states. Everyone's talking like states will still. You still won't be able to cross state lines with it, mm. right? You know because there's going to be like local already invested in their laws, own infrastructure, yeah. and they're not going to want to give that money away. You mm. know what I mean? Like so it's. Because otherwise, then California is just going to supply the whole country with weed. And then Colorado is going to be like, wait a minute. We just, you know, built all these businesses. So I think there will still be. Well, there's definitely be, be, there's going to be constitutional issues in terms of the Commerce Clause there because that because they need to be open between state lines. Right. But but even alcohol, you know, like right. every state has its own alcohol right. board. Like, right. you, you know, like. Like Massachusetts closes on Sunday or like a certain time on Sunday. Yeah. Or and like then, that. you know, like everything has to go. Because th- I know like I have a wine brand and like yeah. dealing with southern wine and spirits where it's like like i have to market to each state like i have to go and market to the gatekeepers in pennsylvania in order to sell my wine right. in pennsylvania yeah. and then i have to go so the like there's federal laws and then there's like local laws yeah, and state gonna, laws and like even though even when it federally flips there will still be some gates between states it's not going to be that simple as like you know uh, yeah it'll it'll still be complicated but i think but it'll be a lot easier um yeah and uh yeah, I guess let's change the topic and we'll finish up on this. I know yeah. I brought it up earlier. Uh, being a dad, yeah, you know, being a dad, husband, the um, best pain in the ass ever. Really? Yeah. When, when was it? When did you become when a did, father? So, when um, did you get married? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I let's see. I met my wife in 2011, May 11th, 2011. We met our first day, day, day before my birthday, day before his birthday. No, there really? you go. Yeah, I wasn't born in 2011. You're May 12th. Yeah, May 13th. May 28th. Nice. But you guys are Tauruses. Yeah. It's okay. Um, I have a twin personality, so we're equal out. (laughs) Two, two. But yeah, I met my wife in 2011, got married 2013, and, um, you know, had kids shortly thereafter. And it's the best. You know, all the cliches are true. Like, it's, I, um, you know, I mean, it's hard. My wife and I both have, you know, full-blown careers that we're very passionate about um but you know i sat down with her and i was like okay look like do we you know do we obviously the thing that's scary about having kids is not dirty diapers or lack of sleep you know what's truly terrifying about having kids is loving something with that magnitude of love that is vulnerable Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and and it's terrifying that I am no longer the most important thing in my life that, you know, my, that the priorities of my life had left my body and entered this other body. And so, Mm -hmm. but you know, I sat down with my wife and I was like, it's scary and we need to make a decision together. Do we want to know what that magnitude of love feels like, you know, like in my lifetime, what do I want? Like, do I want to stay in the shallow end and have, and like, 
great. Sleep eight hours a night and, you know, not ever have to be that terrified of, of, of you know. Yeah. Um, but to go deeper, like what are the, con- like to yeah. you, what are the consequences of that? Like what is that? Well, that's what I mean. Like to? I would, I, we just decided that like, yeah, like I want to know, like I want to get on that roller coaster. I want higher highs and I want lower lows. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I, I, I'm, I want to turn that page and I want to know what it is. Mm-hmm. And I want to be as young as possible when I do. And today's as young as I'm going to get, you yeah. know? So we were just like, fuck it. Let's, let's do it. Um, so yeah, so we had one kid and we were one and done. We we're like, great. It's a miracle. She's perfect. Let's do it. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> had a second one too. It's like, ta- it's like tattoos, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you can't I mean, just have the one. second one wasn't as, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it deliberate. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, Lake won't, she won't take off her pants till I get a vestectomy now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, it's, it's great. You know, it gives me a reason. Like there's a lot of growing up that I would never do for myself that once my kids showed up, I was like, okay, I'll grow up for you. Yeah. You know, like I, I did you feel that change like immediately for sure. Everything that like you guys are the reason like everything the reasons why you guys are here interviewing me for a podcast I've accomplished all that since having kids, mm. you know like the idea of like once you have kids like you're you know that's it you're done you know like um, I mean I remember you know I, as an artist you know like I was nervous about having kids because I thought that it would put financial pressures on my work that would force me to dilute the integrity of my work where it's like, right. I'm just going to have to make money. Um, you know, like I'm going to have to crank out artwork to pay the bills and, you know, people will look at my life's work later on and be like, this is what he made before he had kids. And this is what he made yeah. after, you know, but, but I was like, I accept that. Like I accept the financial pressure and the possible, you know, sacrificing of integrity in my work. I want to know what that love feels like. And it was, a couple months before my first kid was born and I remember I woke up from a dream in which I dreamt I had died before she was born. Hmm. And there was this like 12 year old girl going through my studio, looking at all the stuff in my studio, trying to figure out who her dad was. And, you know, cause all she knew of me was this work that I had left behind. And I distinctly remember waking up, and being like, I don't give a fuck about the money. I don't give a fuck about anything. I'm never making anything that isn't sincere again. Mm-hmm. Like I'm never, you know what I mean? Like, whereas I thought the pressure would be applied financially, the pressure actually was like, I have to be sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause everything that I make from this moment forward, that little girl has to be able to happen upon at my studio and be like, my fucking dad made that, you know? Why isn't that like an ad campaign for Bebo? <laughs> like, I don't know that makes like you want to buy drugs. I think that's like, a campaign for babies. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it's a hey, campaign just flip for. flip it upside down. Yeah. It just yeah, might I mean, work. Just, it's just different might branding work. on it every time. Whoever wants to, put, yeah. whatever you perceive it as. But it really was. Ad. But I was like, it was, it, was, it was a very, it was a relief to know that like, yes, it did put a lot more pressure on me, but not in the way I thought, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it made me to be more sincere, not necessarily, um, more lucrative what do you consider your life's mission like your life's why your life's purpose um well let's say i mean now it's like when now i have kids it's just my life purpose is just create a safe place for them to jump off of and enjoy watching them jump off mm-hmm. that's pretty much it love, love it. it well hey man this has been a fantastic conversation i'm so glad we did this and got to meet you and yeah, hear your story and time. 
and uh, excited to see where things go with you, things go with Bebo. Uh, we'll be there supporting, and uh, it's been great, man. Oh, thanks, thanks, Scott.